This Government Matters podcast is sponsored by Hughes Network Systems, delivering innovation for civilian and military connectivity. It is time to expect more from your network. From Washington, D.C. and around the world, this is Government Matters with Francis Rose. Thanks for watching Government Matters, the only show covering the latest news, trends, and topics that matter to the business of government. I'm your host, Francis Rose. New diversity and inclusion programs are coming under an executive order from President Biden. The Office of Personnel Management and Office of Management and Budget will lead the development of the Diversity, Equity, Inclusion, and Accessibility Initiative. GovExec reports OPM and OMB will coordinate with the White House and the Equal Employment Opportunity Commission on the initiative. The technology monetization funds working through almost a hundred proposals tonight. Department of Homeland Security Chief Information Officer Eric Heisen says four of the proposals are for his agency. Federal News Network reports TMF board member Matt Hartman of CISA says the board's already reviewed three proposals from agencies for zero trust projects. A new director's in at the Army's network modernization cross-functional team. Brigadier General Jeff Ray took over the spot this month. FedScoop reports Ray's last assignment was as head of command and control and communications at Central Command. The numbers are in for the best places to work in the federal government. The blue ribbon winners this year are NASA, the Government Accountability Office, and the Congressional Budget Office. Danny Werfel's managing director and partner at the Boston Consulting Group. He's former controller at the Office of Management and Budget and former acting commissioner of the Internal Revenue Service. Danny, it's good to see you again. You and I have talked about the best places to work in government numbers from the Partnership for Public Service. I think this is like the eighth or ninth year running. Why is this something that's important to you on either a personal or a professional level, Danny? Well, because it, ta- it, it, it makes the point that, that the workforce matters. We care about uh, government workers, their morale, their engagement. You know, we measure it because it's important to leaders in government to understand where they are in the rankings and it motivates organizations to do better to engage their workforce. And, you know, an engaged workforce is a more productive one. And I've said this many times on on your show and others, whether you're a fan of small government or big government, you want your government to work. And the government won't work if the people aren't engaged and productive. And And activities like this help create engaged workforce and help communicate to leaders what they need to do to improve uh, managing these workforces. One of the trends I see in this year's numbers, Danny, is that the winners keep winning. The, 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 the rich get bigger, get rich get richer in one sense. NASA, GAO, CBO, what do they know or what do they do that other organizations should be trying to know or do more of? Well, the one thing that, that the government has going for it, when you look at engagement scores, especially against the private sector, one area that the public sector consistently scores higher on is connection to mission. And I think NASA really um, perfects this. I mean, obviously we all grow up knowing about NASA's mission. It's exciting, it's inspiring, even if you're not at NASA. And I think to the organization's credit, they really tap into that purpose and that mission and get everyone on board with what they're trying to do um, and that connectivity. And they do other things very, very well. 
but it's that mission. What I really think is interesting is looking at, at the Government Accountability Office and the Congressional Budget Office. You don't grow up, you know, there aren't movies about GAO and CBO. Yeah, God bless and them, but you're right. There's no Buzz Lightyear for GAO, you know? And uh, yet these organizations really do have um, inspiring cultures within them that get people excited about what they do matters. Um, and once you get people excited about what they do, I mean, there are other pieces to the puzzle here that are critical. Um, but I think it starts with connection to mission and purpose. And I think the organizations that score high do a very good job of that and then cascade other good practices around workforce management that help uh, maintain these great scores. What are some of those practices that agencies should be paying attention to, Danny? It's a lot around communication and opening the lines of communication. Like, for, and, and, and really having a leadership that has no ego and, and connects with the workforce at every level. I mean, I once was uh, in, a, in a session with the head of HR for NASA and they were describing this thing they do called the reverse mentor program, where senior leaders at NASA go down and shadow and learn from line level employees on the front line. And that does so much. First of all, demonstrates that the leaders are not above learning from the line level. It gets them into the field. It's these types of things. You don't have to do that every day, but what that does is it gets the leaders to understand what the workforce is living through and seeing on a day-to-day -day basis and sends a, mes a message to the workforce that the leadership cares and wants to do and have an employee-centric view of how the organization's moving forward. I just want to be very clear. When I was laughing at your comment earlier, I was laughing at your comment and not the idea of GAO or CBO and the tremendous success that they've had, not just this year, but historically in the best places to work in government. And it was funny to me because I was just on a website last night looking at graphic t-shirts of all things, and this company's selling a NASA t-shirt. And that's why I laughed, because I was imagining how, much, how many GAO t-shirts they would probably sell if they were doing that. When you're in an agency like that, that maybe is not having the success that they're having, and you don't have a mission that's so high profile, as you say, no Buzz Lightyear for some of these organizations, what do you do to make sure that you're engaging your employees on the level that organizations like that are engaging their employees and making them so happy as employees that I've talked to in both of those organizations are to work there, Danny? You, you empower them, you get them excited uh, uh, and recognize the mission that they have. You know, I tell people one of, one of the highlights of my life was having lunch at one point with Buzz Aldrin, but I also had lunch with Gene Didero, you know, and, and he's inspiring too um, because he follows uh, a true north around better government um, and, and cares uh, deeply about the organization that he's serving and, and the employees and their journey. And that care is genuine um, and it translates. And so it really does start with the leadership that is uh, focused on a legacy of leaving the organization that they're leading in a better place versus their own reputation or their own you know, um, kind of profile. Um, I, I, that's the type of leader that I would aspire to be and aspire to be. 
Um, and that's the type of leader that gets organizations like GAO to be the best places to work in government. Danny Werfel, thanks very much as always. Great to have you back on the program. My pleasure, Francis. Coming next, new R&D money for the Pentagon. Straight ahead on Government Matters, what might go out the window to pay for that R&D? You're watching WJLA 24-7 News. Defense Secretary Lloyd Austin and other leaders are pushing Congress to allocate more money for research, development, and technology. But those leaders got lots of questions from authorizers this week about what they want to get rid of to pay for those investments. Mackenzie Eaglin's resident fellow at the American Enterprise Institute. Mackenzie, it's good to see you again. How much of what you saw is the same stuff we've been talking about, you and I, for a decade or more, Congress wants to keep stuff that the military wants to get rid of. And how much of this looks different to you, Mackenzie? Well, and also how much of this is the same from previous administration in the executive branch approach, right? So, you know, the growth in the R&D, the research and development budget has been the solution since the tail end of the Obama administration. And that's been continued now through to today. So I think Congress is getting increasingly antsy about the balance between research and development how that money is spent, and then, as you're pointing out, what happens to capacity, right? So what happens to tactical aircraft, for example, which is down 20, well, actually aircraft purchases in general are down 20% in the Army and in the Navy and in the Air Force. So Congress is concerned about this balance, and just saying that we have you know, record R&D spending is not a solution that's going to please them enough. What fixes that? Is, is it more money? Is it spending the money differently than maybe both Congress and the department think? What's, what's the gap? How do, how do we bridge that gap? So a lot of the criticism that's coming out, the members are talking about more funds. Now, I don't know if that will actually manifest. It certainly could. I'm not ruling it out. Uh, it's possible to get a, a bigger budget deal that you could cut this defense deal. Uh, but to buy more capacity, you know, as the services are proposing in their wish lists, you got to find more money or take it out of R&D. But Congress is already going to struggle to change the research and development investments. Like they, they understand there's more money for hypersonics, for example, this year, weapons. Uh, but they also want to talk more about artificial intelligence and how science and technology funding is being allocated and decide if they agree with the department. But to your point, like, the, the bottom line, how do you actually get the two sides to agree? You have to pick winners and losers, Francis, in the research and development account and pull them forward as programs of record. You have to put them into production so that they can actually get into the hands of the people who are going to use it. To the point of the projection of capability moving forward, I'm going to pick on the Army uh, with all due respect to our friends in the other services. Uh, the Army established its modernization priorities under the Trump administration, the Big Six. It is pushed and pushed and pushed on the Big Six. Has it done a decent enough job of demonstrating we are developing the new capabilities that we need for war fighting in the 2020s and the 2030s and beyond to build confidence in Congress that it should be able to proceed on that path? Or is some of the hesitancy just based on parochialism, do you think? I do think that they've made a strong case, and not to mention the leadership of the Army is unified, 
they've taken programs. In fact, the Army is one of the few services lately, in the, as in the last few years, that's been able to take uh, a, a revolutionary innovation and move it into the hands of war fighters. They actually skipped making it a program of record. They skipped a requirements document, for example. They used uh, special authorities. Um, these are their night, their special high-tech night, new night vision goggles that uh, Microsoft coders helped develop in the field alongside soldiers. So the Army has some examples, but they, I don't know that they've answered future vertical lift well enough. I think that's an ongoing question. And the fact that you know they're they're making the case that one dollar change will upend all all of the research and development and modernization. That's we know Congress is going to make changes. So then the question becomes: So will it all fall apart, or uh, is it going to you know can the two get sides come to a solution? And then the last issue is just always end strength because the army is as busy as ever. I know there's been some changes in the Middle East lately, but you know their biggest investment, their weapon system highest spending is on their people. And Congress is, is, is worried as the Army leadership about that. Is that the model maybe though for the other services moving forward? And, and they're doing similar things, but just to basically set about the mission of modernizing and developing new capabilities. And I mean, it seems to me the Arm, Army has kind of dragged Congress along and, and said, here's yeah. what we've got. And Congress goes, well, it's kind of hard to argue with the successes that they're having. That's a fair point. I mean, they just barreled ahead as a service. And once they had something to show for it, Congress was mildly impressed. Um, I think it is a model for the other services. I would like, you know, I don't think it's perfectly applicable because not everything can avoid becoming a program of record. But what you can't do is research and develop to death, right? Basically, if a program's been in research or development for more than three years, it's probably a bust and you need to just cut bait and move on and spend that money elsewhere. If, you're, if it's not moving into production or even procurement, program of record or not, it needs to move, you know, the Pentagon needs to move on. I think that's really where Congress has to hold the department accountable. The record R&D alone, again, it's just not, that's not gonna cut it anymore. We need clear winners and losers now. And I get it, that's hard to do. Nobody wants to, to be the adjudicator there, but they, they're willing to make winners and losers of legacy systems. So I think now we need to apply that model to research and development. Uh, 20 seconds, Mackenzie. What winners and losers do you anticipate seeing? Well, that is a really good question. I mean, I, I support, I think Congress is supportive of all of the similar top priorities of the department. But for example, we've heard Air Force leadership say, you know, if we really want to compete with China in the near term, we need more quantum computing and other types of capabilities in that basket. And so I could see Congress, you know, looking at that, taking it to heart moving money around within the research and development budget to support that effort because i think members are waking up to that this is a really here and now problem that they have to address mackenzie eaglin always great to talk to you thank you thank you up next the battle begins over the future of the federal workforce straight ahead on government matters the right questions to ask to fix the civil service we archive every episode of government matters at govmatters.tv i'll be right back Agencies only have a few weeks left to submit their return to office plans, but those making the arguments 
about the future of the federal workforce are asking the wrong questions. According to Don Kettle, the Sid Richardson professor at the LBJ School of Public Affairs at the University of Texas in Austin. Don, it's great to see you. You're writing about the next generation of the federal workforce in GovExec. And what I love about reading your work is you always write about solutions and not just problems. You write in this piece, we need to focus on how government can deliver on the needs of Americans. The fundamental problem of the public service is its growing difficulty of producing the results citizens and the policymakers they elect expect. Why is that difficulty growing in your view, Don? Well, I think it's growing primarily because we've, we've lost track so often when we start talking about human capital, about the mission, what it is that we want public workers to do and have focused more and more on process about the, the difficulties we have with hiring, whether or not we ought to be firing more, whether or not we need to increase or decrease the number of workers. Really, the, the main question is, what do we want government to do? Who do we need in the right places with the right skills at the right time to get the job done? And unfortunately, we've tended to spend much more time on process and much less on the mission that government's been really set up to do. You make four points in this piece about where we should start this revamp of the workforce. And Kieran Ahuja is already talking about it as the new director of the Office of Personnel Management. The first point that you make is that mission matters most. The second one that you write is merit is key. Have we lost sight of that in your view in the recent past, Don? Yeah, I think that the problem is that it's been disconnected from the reasons why we set this up to begin with. We, we don't want, as we've established for the last 140 years, a system that is focused on, for example, getting political loyalty into place in the, in the minds and the hearts of public employees. There, there really isn't a Republican or a Democratic way to land a plane at an airport or a Republican or Democratic way to try to make sure that you run the Tennessee Valley Authority or to ensure the national parks are well taken care of. So what we really need to do is to focus on how to make sure that we have politically neutral competence to achieve the missions that the government set up. Responsive to be sure, but not politicized in the process. And that's what I think we've lost sight of. How to try to create a system of merit that balances mission with the protection that public employees deserve. Is there a way to run a system like that, Don, while recognizing the individual uh, successes and lack of successes among the individual employee at the rank and file level? Or do you have to do that in a system like we have now, kind of a general schedule system, where everybody at a certain level makes the same kind of compensation? Well, I think that there needs to be some possibility for flexibility in pay so that we can pay attention to and reward people who do the best work. But most importantly, I think what we've learned is that the reason why most people work for the federal government is not to make lots of money and not to have super secure benefits, but more importantly, to try to make sure that they have a chance to be able to, to do exciting work and to be able to find ways of delivering value. And that's the, the big payoff. So that the, the way to achieve that payoff is to try to make the teams work better in the federal government, to try to make sure that public employees have the skills that they need and that they're really given the opportunity to do what it is they joined the federal government to accomplish. The third of your points is accountability lies at the core. The core of what, Don? Well, it's, it's the core of every layer of government. It's accountability to ultimately the people who elect elected officials, the voters. They're the ones who are really in charge of the American Republic. Accountability to public officials who were put there to try to accomplish goals and 
In fact, every administration comes in with its own policy initiatives, accountability to their customers who sit out there and are the ones that for whom the, the government really exists, and accountability in many ways to each other. So that the, the teams that are responsible for doing government's work are teams that are equipped and empowered to be able to accomplish missions. So it's accountability in a number of layers. And my concern is that too often accountability simply gets framed in, let's make it easier to fire feds. And it really misses the mark, I think, on what it is that we expect public employees to do. You write the first three steps point to the fourth. The fourth is human capital ought to drive the pursuit of performance. How do you measure performance in uh, an organization like a federal agency? And are the organizations in government right now measuring their performances correctly, do you think? Well, I think that we've lost sight a bit about the connection between the people who work for government and the mission that we want government to accomplish. If you look at GAO's high risk list, for example, uh, a careful reading of the report shows that human capital is part of almost every single problem but also almost every single solution. And so what we need, I think, is to find a way to make uh, government personnel and human resources and human capital as essential to government as budgeting and questions of organization and structure. And then to connect with that, I think, a, a way to try to first focus on whether or not government employees are serving the public. That is, are we accomplishing the mission? It has to do in part with individual contributions, but most importantly, the way that individuals contribute to the mission as a whole. I think the more that we focus on what it is we want government to do and how well government's doing it, the easier it's going to be to align every step of the process to ensure that we make that happen. And, and that's what it is that I think we most need to focus on here. Don Kettle, thanks very much. It's great to have you on the program. So good to be with you. You can find a link to Don's piece at govmatters.tv slash resources. And don't forget, if you miss an episode of the show, it's at govmatters.tv. You get a preview and a recap of every show when you sign up for our daily newsletters. You just enter your email in the red box on the website. I'm back in two minutes. That's the latest from Washington. Join me weeknights at 8 and 11 on WJLA 24-7 News and Sunday mornings at 1030 on 7 News to stay plugged in on issues that matter to the business of government. Thanks for watching. I'm Francis Rose. Thanks for listening. Our daily program is produced by James Mahoney and Drew Friedman. Christy Marriott leads our technical crew. Our web editor is Beatrice Haddon. Our director of content is Alan Holmes. Visit govmatters.tv for articles, videos, and more. Government Matters is recorded at WJLA-TV in Washington, D.C. Copyright Sinclair Broadcast Group.
You have been listening to the Government Matters Podcast, sponsored by Hughes Network Systems. Stay tuned for a brief interview with Tony Bardo of Hughes. Tony Bardo is Assistant Vice President for Government Solutions at Hughes. Tony, it's great to talk to you again. I thought of you the other day because I saw another agency make an award on the Enterprise Infrastructure Solutions contract at General Services Administration. You have been telling me for a long time about how important this contract is. Why is it so important, Tony? It's so important because the agencies have been dealing with 20-year-old network technology um, for 20 years. And, and basically, this is their opportunity to use this important contract to modernize the network, to keep up with constituents who are demanding more digital-centric services. And the government needs the, the network to, uh, to step up to those uh, expectations. This is a long-term contract. How is it built so that when Hughes rolls out something cool, say, five years from now, that the agencies will be able to access that? The agencies will be able to leverage new technologies that come down the line during the life of this contract? GSA's got a good plan for that. They've got a plan for the on-ramping of, of services. Uh, frankly, the, the, the current SD-WAN movement is an example of that. SD-WAN did not exist when EIS was awarded. But GSA's been working hard with the agencies and with the primes to add these services. So what's important is that the agencies demand that the, um, that, that the primes offer various kinds of SD-WAN solutions. There are a number of them out there. They need to not just offer their direct example examples of uh, proprietary services, but there are multiple platforms. Agencies should really meet with the primes and say, here's what I want. Here's what I want to, here's where I want to go over the next 10 to 15 years. Time is of the essence, it strikes me, Tony, because uh, there's a countdown clock going here for agencies to get these contracts awarded. Um, if you're just starting this process at the beginning, first of all, shame on you, I guess. But um, secondly, what's the role of the vendor to help uh, uh, an agency move the ball? Well, I think, I think the idea here is to, if you haven't gotten started yet, make sure you're asking the right questions of industry, that you're asking for the right kind of services. If you're still s stuck on an RFP or a format that asks for older technology, there are, and, and there are unfortunately, Francis, a number of RFPs and fair opportunities out there that have asked for the old stuff. And it's it's like, the, the to, to some extent, I'm, I'm, I'm advocating for timeline be damned, you ought to, stop stop the presses start over again and recast the requirement to reflect what's what's needed uh, what agencies should expect from their networks today we just have uh, 20 seconds left tony you have you're casting this as an opportunity for agencies to transform the way they do things and not just write a new contract it sounds like oh absolutely it's 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 critical it's the right time the technology is very very fresh and can carry the agencies for a long time forward. Tony Bardo of Hughes, great to talk to you, my friend. Thank you, Francis.